Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist. Today it's just me. I thought I would continue my talks on evolutionary psychology research. But before I do that, just a little reminder that you can go to psychologyinseattle.com and you can find all sorts of goodies there on our website, including how to contact us and how to show your support. If you could go to psychologyinseattle.com and click around, that would be great. All right, so evolutionary psychology. Basically, mainstream evolutionary psychologists believe that we evolved certain psychological mechanisms that were adaptive in our ancient history. So we have ancient humans, you know, 100,000 years ago, 1 million years ago. We lived in Africa on the savanna, and our environment was such that we evolved certain psychological mechanisms. And our societies were such that we evolved these psychological mechanisms because they were adaptive to our survival and ultimately our ability to reproduce. So we evolved in all likelihood a psychological mechanism for a fear of snakes even though most people have never been bitten by a snake or even seen anyone bitten by a snake, most people have a fear of snakes because it, it seems that on the African savanna there were poisonous snakes. And so those people who had an innate fear of snakes and would run away from snakes were more likely to survive and have offspring. Whereas those people who didn't have an innate fear of snakes might not run away from the snakes and get bitten and then die and not be able to have children. Therefore, today, most people, when we see a snake, our heart starts to race, our adrenaline starts pumping, and evolutionary psychologists would say that this is not learned. Maybe some of it is learned, but much of it is just an innate fear. Another thing that evolutionary psychologists will also say is that driving on the freeway today is much more dangerous to humans than snakes are. But when most people get on the freeway, they don't have a visceral fear reaction. In fact, most people are pretty complacent about driving their cars under dangerous circumstances. And we could say that we're not born with a fear of driving on the freeway, whereas we could say we're born with a fear of snakes. Why? Well, because ancient humans didn't have freeways, and therefore we weren't selected to have an innate instinct for fear of highways, but we were selected to have an innate fear of snakes. So let's go into some of the research. One research article I read was written by Jonathan. It was written by Jonathan in 2007 called An Evolutionary Psychology Perspective on Sex Differences in Exercise Behaviors and Motivations. It was in the Journal of Social Psychology. So according to Jonathan, mainstream evolutionary psychology researchers have found that due to sexual selection, due to evolution, men have instincts to look larger, whereas women have instincts to look smaller. So in other words, when men are trying to compete with other men for female attention, they work out to try to get their muscles big, they will puff out their chest, they'll stand tall, whereas women will try to lose weight by starving themselves and by doing exercises that make them look smaller. Now, right off the bat, I just want to say that a lot of mainstream evolutionary psychology is problematic to me, not just because it bothers me culturally, but because the science behind it, I think, has a lot of assumptions in it that they don't disclose as assumptions, and therefore their findings are easily critiqued. I'll just say that from the outset, but let's go into uh, some of this research here. So Jonathan decided to research this idea that men have an instinct to be bigger up in their upper body, whereas women try to appear smaller by uh, surveying 
234 male and female college students in Connecticut. One of the ways, as I've said in previous episodes, one of the ways that evolutionary psychologists attempt to establish that a behavior or a tendency is innate and and instinctual among humans is by demonstrating that it is universal to all humans. Because in order for humans to have an instinct, it must it, it has to crop up in all cultures. But if something only emerges in one culture, then that suggests that it's a cultural learning thing rather than an instinctual thing, if that makes any sense. So, so right here, we just have a study looking at 234 college students in Connecticut. And the findings of this study, how do we know that it just isn't particular to that culture? Well, we don't know because other people weren't looked at. And I don't blame evolutionary psychologists for this per se, because studies that involve people from all over the world are extremely expensive and probably impossible to pull off given the money that evolutionary psychologists have. So I don't fault them for that, but I do fault them for claiming that this proves that something is instinctual because there's just no way of knowing that because they just haven't looked cross-culturally. I mean, they haven't even looked at different ages of people. They're only looking at college men and women in Connecticut. It, you know, it's just mind-boggling how specific that is in terms of culture. So in his study, when he surveyed these college students in Connecticut, he found that male participants focused their energy on gaining muscle mass in their upper body, whereas female participants focused their energy on losing weight. Jonathan believes that this data proves that men and women have different instincts about how to compete with other people of their same sex for the attention of people of the opposite sex. Now, this is, <laughs> I just find this to be incredibly obtuse. I mean, now, it's interesting if you just look at the data and you don't consider evolutionary psychology, you just look at the data and you say, oh, yeah, okay, I guess it's kind of obvious, but all right, when you actually study these people, men focus on trying to have bigger arms and bigger chests and women spend a lot of their energy on trying to lose weight. Okay. Interesting. But because this was an evolutionary psychologist collecting this data, they decide that it's proof that we have this instinct to do this behavior. But if it was a social psychologist looking at this data, they would just look at the data and say, well, clearly we're teaching these people that women should be thin and men need to have big upper bodies. So how do we know if the social psychologist is right? How do we know if the evolutionary psychologist is right? We just don't know because it's incredibly difficult to determine whether or not something's instinctual versus whether or not something is cultural. But just from a quick survey in my mind of the various cultures that I'm familiar, familiar with around the world, different cultures value upper body strength in men differently. In Japan, for instance, they don't value upper body strength in men the same way that they do in the States. In the States, a, a prized man has just humongous upper body strength. Uh, I just recently saw the new Superman movie, and he was ripped. I mean, that guy was, of course, he's Superman, but he was just huge. Whereas heroes in Japanese film tend to be very slight and not buff at all. So is it innate that we want to build up our body strength in, in our pecs and our arms, or is it cultural? Well, again, just a quick kind of survey in my mind of different cultures, I would say that it's probably more cultural than it is innate. 
Also, another kind of quick survey in my mind, I'm not an anthropologist, so this isn't, I'm not an expert in this area, but if I'm trying to look for exceptions to this idea, I can very quickly find in my mind an example of, of a culture that did not value thin women. There was a time in in Europe, you know, three, four, five, six hundred years ago, I don't know the exact time, when all the paintings of women were what we would call today to be overweight. I think Rubenesque is the word. Ruben was the one of the artists, I think, that is famous for these paintings of women who, by today's standards, are overweight. So we can say that in some cultures, in some times, people would prize different kinds of women in, in different body shapes. And in today's culture in the States, we value very thin women. And that is likely to have an effect on women. And women's behavior will likely reflect that cultural value. And I'm not saying all women, obviously. It's just when you look at large groups of women, on average, you're going to see it. So Jonathan provides the following argument. And again, doesn't provide any data to back it up. Just just makes the claim as if it's gospel. Jonathan says that feminist scholars and, and other scholars will critique evolutionary psychology by claiming that culture has an effect on people, that media images will affect people and cause boys to want to be big in the upper body and, and females to be very thin. And basically what Jonathan says is that the media reflects the instinct not the other way around. Without providing any convincing argument as to why this is, Jonathan just makes the claim that, well, some people say that the media is affecting the humans, but everyone knows it's obviously the other way around, that our instincts are reflected in the media, that we have an in, that women have an instinct to be thin, and therefore it's reflected in the media because we have an instinct to be thin, rather than the media affecting the behavior and the values that the humans have, if that makes any sense. And so that's, in a nutshell, the argument that Jonathan makes, but again, provides no, no convincing evidence of that, just makes that claim. Now, I would say that certainly if we do have instincts, which it seems we likely do, that they definitely would be reflected in our media and that they definitely would be reflected in our culture. But how can we tease out the difference? It's very difficult to do that. So I thought I might provide an example of how evolutionary psychology gets twisted and used in mainstream literature. So a man named Kingsley Brown wrote an article called Sex, Power, and Dominance, the Evolutionary Psychology of Sexual Harassment. He wrote this article in 2006, and it's published in the journal Managerial and Decision Economics. So we have someone that's writing in business journals and citing evolutionary psychology. So this is a quote. Quote, Despite the assumption that prohibitions of discrimination would lead to economic parity between the sexes, men tend, for reasons traceable to our evolutionary heritage, to engage in behaviors that cause them to earn more money than women and lead them to occupy the highest organizational positions at disproportionate rates. So this is just mind-bogglingly horrible. I, I don't really have any other word for it. So let me just sort of parse this out for you. Um, so in, in his article, Kingsley Brown, who is actually not 
an unknown writer. He's actually well-known. He's saying that we had this assumption in the past that if we prohibited discrimination in the workplace, that we would see an equalization of women and men. In past decades, we decided to try to stop people from discriminating against women and because we were seeing that women weren't earning as much money, they weren't getting hired at the same rates. So we decided to say, look, it's illegal to discriminate against women. So this is me talking that that's true and that we, we are still trying to pull ourselves out of that, that today women still don't earn as much money as men at the same jobs. And it doesn't mean that our efforts failed. It just means that it's going to take a long time to pull ourselves out of that cultural thing. But what Kingsley Brown is saying is that our efforts at reducing discrimination have failed because men still tend to earn more money and still tend to dominate higher ranking jobs. So he's basically saying that men, due to evolutionary psychology, evolved the psychological mechanisms to earn more money and to get the higher ranking jobs. So there are so many problems with this. <laughs> um, and some of them might not be quite so obvious. Now, first off, I'll say that it is possible that men, on average, have innate qualities that lead them to be more aggressive in the workplace. So, so we could say that that, that might be true. I, I, I'm not quite so even sure about that, but, but let's say, for the sake of argument, that that's true. Well... If you have a system that values aggression, then you're going to have men rise in the ranks. But if you have a system that values non-aggression, then you're going to have men not rise in the ranks. So it's impossible to say that men evolved the abilities to be successful in business because business is a social construction in and of itself. We decide as a culture what we want to value in our workers. Capitalism is a system and has certain values within it. So if we have a social system that values what we tend to see in men, then men are going to rise the ranks. So there's that. The other issue is that we obviously again, as I've said many times, socialize our children to behave in certain ways. And if we socialize young boys to earn money, to value that, and we socialize young girls to not value that and to value things like child rearing or taking care of their husbands, then we're going to see different behavior in adult men and women. Now, as I say that, I know things are changing and obviously not all families socialize their children in the same way because they don't. But when you look at large populations, you know, I think it's safe to say that we tend to socialize boys and girls in different ways when it comes to occupational behaviors. The other thing that just popped in my head, and I'm not a sociologist so, and, or, an or an economist or any of these things, and these things are just popping into my head because they're just obvious. But another thing that pops into my head is in our society, we value some jobs over other jobs. So, for instance, and, and we tend to value jobs that are traditionally male jobs over jobs that are traditionally female jobs. Why? Because we have a sexist society, particularly in the past. So to top it off, Kingsley Brown also claims that sexual harassment is a natural male tendency. 
And Kingsley Brown, just a, he's, he's not a kook. He's, he's a professor of law at Wayne State University and has published a number of books and articles on evolutionary psychology and the inclusion of women in the military and in the workplace. Uh, one of his books, incidentally, is titled Co-Ed Combat, The New Evidence That Women Shouldn't Fight the Nation's Wars. So if you, if you just want to have a good read, read some Kingsley Brown stuff. It's, it's quite humorous. But there are lots of people who just eat it up. In fact, I would say an alarmingly amount of people consider his writing to be very useful and, and accurate. So again, let me just say this again. He claims that sexual harassment in the workplace is a natural male tendency and should therefore not be punished in the way that it is. He says that, that men evolved psychological mechanisms to be horny, particularly when they're around hot women, and that they can't be liable for their behavior when you expose them to hot women in the workplace. So I hope you're cringing out there because this is a horrendous statement to make. Now, is it possible that men evolved the psychological mechanism to be more interested in sex than women? It's possible, although when you look at data more carefully, it doesn't seem that that's even true. It's, a, it's certainly a cultural belief. It's a stereotypical belief. But, you know, could could men be more horny than women? Okay, maybe. But again, I don't think so. And therefore, might they be more likely to be sexually harassing at the workplace? Yeah. But to say that it's natural and therefore shouldn't be dealt with as harshly is absurd. As a man myself, I've never had the instinct or the urge to sexually harass someone at work. As a man, I know the difference between a sexual partner and a coworker. It's not a difficult distinction to make. I would imagine that most people can make that distinction. And if people have trouble with that distinction, then they need to be disciplined, whether they're men or women. All right. So the last bit of evolutionary psychology I want to go into is in regards to sexual jealousy. I read a lot of literature written by Christine Harris. Her writing was enjoyable to read. She tends to publish articles that critique evolutionary psychology, and I, f and I found them to be spot on. If you might remember from previous episodes, there's a mainstream belief in evolutionary psychology that men evolved a psychological mechanism to be jealous sexually of their wives, meaning that men would be jealous if their wife was to have sex with someone else or was threatening to have sex with someone else and not jealous of their wives if they were to become emotionally attached to someone else. And again, this mainstream belief believes that women evolved a psychological mechanism not to be jealous of their husbands having sex with other people, but to be jealous of their husbands being emotionally involved with someone else. So basically, the idea goes like this. Since men have a lot of sperm, they have the ability to impregnate as many people as they have sex with potentially, and therefore are able to have lots of offspring. Whereas women, since they only have one egg every once in a while, and since they can't get pregnant while they're pregnant, they can only have a very limited amount of offspring. You know, one man can literally have hundreds of, of children, whereas a woman in her lifetime could maybe have 20 max or something like that. Because of this difference in biology between men and women, they evolved different psychological mechanisms as a result. 
So again, I don't necessarily believe this to be true, but this is how the theory goes, is that women evolved the instinct to not be so concerned about their husbands having sex with other people, because as long as her husband has sex with her once and impregnates her and sticks around to take care of that child, she doesn't care if he occasionally goes off and has sex with someone else. It doesn't threaten her ability to reproduce. Whereas men, since they're concerned with this one egg that the female has every once in a while, since he really wants to make sure that her baby is his, he has to make sure that she never has sex with anyone else. So the idea goes, because of that reason, men evolved a psychological mechanism, the instinct to be very jealous if there's any kind of threat that their wife will have sex with someone else. Because it only takes her to have sex once with another man to have to spend a lifetime raising someone else's child. And since evolution involves the passing on of one's genes, it becomes extremely important that men know that the child they're raising is their own. So they came up with this theory and they decided to test it, evolutionary, mainstream evolutionary psychologists, namely David Buss and, and others. So they, they came up with this theory and they said, okay, well, let's test it. And so they went out into society and took some measurements and found that indeed men tend to be more jealous of their wives sexually and women tend to be more jealous of their husbands regarding emotional infidelity. Now, right off the bat, I'll tell you that I'm not talking about homosexuals or polyamorous people because society and evolutionary psychology tends to ignore these people because they provide serious challenges to their theories. So, so anyway, they, they, again, they measured people and they said, hey, uh, what, would make, what would make you more upset? Would you be more upset if your husband or wife had passionate sex with another person? Or would you be more upset if they formed an emotional attachment with another person? And what they found that uh, was that men, on average, tended to say, you know what, I'd be more upset if my wife had sex with someone than if she formed an emotional attachment with, a, with another man. And that females tended to say that they would be more jealous if their husbands formed an emotional attachment with another person as opposed to having sex with, a, with another person. So to the evolutionary psychologists, they're like, whoa, slam dunk. We had this theory. We asked people. It confirmed our theory. Boom, theory is true. But that's not the whole story. First off, their studies are often limited to Western societies, which is a problem because in order to demonstrate that something is an innate instinct, it has to be present in all cultures, in all humans. And those kinds of studies are very difficult to conduct. It's very difficult and expensive to conduct studies in 300 different languages in different countries. Um, so I don't necessarily fault them for that, but it does provide a challenge to their findings. Because again, how do you know it's just not our culture that teaches people to be jealous in this way? But here's where Christine Harris comes in. In 2003, she conducted a study titled Factors Associated with Jealousy Over Real and Imagined Infidelity. And it was published in Psychology of Women Quarterly. So when Christine Harris asked people about their jealousy, they, they responded in the same way. That uh, when you ask men to choose one or the other, they tend to choose, well, I'd be more bothered if she had sex with someone else. And when they ask women, if you had to choose between one or the other, they tended to say, oh, I'd be more upset if my husband formed an emotional attachment to another person. 
But that's a particular method of asking people to say, you have to choose A or B. That's a forced choice question. So she decided to ask the question in a different way to see if different figures might shed a different light on this. So she asked people to rate on a scale from one to nine how upset they would be. So she asked men and women, how upset would you be if your mate had a one night stand? Please rate that from one to nine. She also asked people, how upset would you be if your mate fell in love with another person? Please, please rate that from one to nine. And then she separated out the men and women and saw if there was any difference between men and women. So if we ask people to rate the, their upsetness on these issues, according to mainstream evolutionary psychologists, when we ask men and women how upset they would be if their mate had a one-night stand, we would expect to see the average response higher in men than in women, right? So on a scale from one to nine, if you ask, well, how upset would you be if your mate had a one-night stand? We would expect men to be like an eight or a nine, and we would see females to be like at a five or a six, right? Well, that's not what happened. The average male response was 8.1, and the average female response was 8.2. Basically the same. In fact, women are more upset by their mates having a one-night stand by a very, very small margin, but basically it's the same thing. So we see that there basically is no difference between men and women when it, when it comes to the amount of upsetness they would have about their mate having a one-night stand. So this completely flies in the face of the mainstream evolutionary psychologist belief that men and women have evolved different psychological mechanisms regarding, regarding sexual jealousy. So the other question is, they, they asked was, how upset would you be if your mate fell in love with another person? And again, here we see that the numbers are almost identical. We have men at 7.6 and we have women at 8. So it's a little bit more of a difference, maybe statistically significant in terms of the difference, but very, very close. Meaning that according to these data, we can see that when you ask in a different way, there's no difference basically between men and women regarding how upset they would be about the two different forms of jealousy, either sex or emotional attachment. So it appears that evolutionary psychologists will choose particular data that supports their theory and ignore other data that doesn't support their theory. And to me, this is just weird because it's not like evolutionary psychology is wrong. It seems completely likely that we evolved particular instincts that were adaptive in our ancient human history. It, it's, it just seems logical that that would be true. But what are they? Well, we don't know. We have to look at the data, right? But it seems like evolutionary psychologists got married to particular theories and were maybe even kind of forced to defend them to some extent and became so attached to them that they won't let go of them. And basically, them doing that makes evolutionary psychology look stupid. So instead of being flexible to the, to the data and to the science and allowing more research to come out and allowing time to provide wisdom about what we're looking at, instead of doing that, they looked at very initial findings from very limited studies, came to some conclusions and, and said, now we know and won't walk away from those conclusions. And again, one of, the, one of the, their early conclusions was that men are jealous of sex and women are jealous of emotional infidelity. And now that other data is coming out that is refuting that finding, they don't know what to do. And in a more general way, I just want to say that 
I often will cringe whenever I hear people talking about the differences between men and women. Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. These kinds of things are highly prevalent in our society and in psychology, and it's just not supported by the data. Time and time again, I have tried to find sound research that points to distinct differences between men and women regarding psychology and their personality and their behavior. And we find that there just is not a lot of data there that points to differences. Um, Certainly there are some differences, but you'd be surprised how little actual differences there are between men and women. So in 2011, Christine Harris also looked into the evolutionary psychology idea that females will prefer different sorts of faces during different times in their menstrual cycle. So the idea goes that when women are ovulating and therefore more likely to be impregnated, they will prefer more masculine faces, quote unquote masculine, whatever that means. And that during times when they're not ovulating, they will prefer more feminine faces in men. And this is based on the common assumption within evolutionary psychology that men, that men with more masculine faces carry better genes and that women instinctually want these better genes for their offspring. But this is not supported by science. So, you know, where these evolutionary psychologists come up with these ideas, I don't know. To test this assertion, Harris asked a bunch of North American women to evaluate the facial attractiveness of photographed individuals and then tracked whether or not they were ovulating at the time to see if they had a preference for masculine, quote unquote, masculine faces while they were ovulating. And she found that there was no greater preference for, quote unquote, masculine faces when fertilization was likely. So this study doesn't get talked about a lot in evolutionary psychology circles because it challenges the common beliefs within evolutionary psychology. And these findings won't get published in common media places like newspapers and magazines because it's not very interesting. It's much more interesting if a study comes out and says, you know, imagine this headline, women prefer, what would it be like in the magazine Vogue or something, it would say something like, ovulating women prefer Channing Tatum over Leonardo DiCaprio. You know, that would catch your eye, right? And you would read, I don't, well, I don't know if that catch your eye, but, but I'm imagining that would be much more likely to attract readers than a headline that said something like, ovulating women's preferences are no different than when they are not ovulating. <laughs> That's just not a very interesting headline. And therefore, when people are trying to get things published, they will try to develop a finding that will catch people's eyes and will therefore get uh, them more notoriety. And currently, the findings within evolutionary psychology are preferred in our society. For whatever reason, we just really love these sex differences and these interesting findings, rather than findings that say, there's really not a lot of difference, differences between men and women. And ovulation doesn't have any effect on our, on our preferences. All right, so in conclusion, I'll say that Is it possible that we have instincts regarding sexual preferences and jealousy? I think, yes, it is possible. Is it also possible that we've been socialized to be jealous in a particular way? Like, for instance, let's say I I would say it's, it's very possible that we evolved an instinct to be jealous if our partners were to move away from us and towards someone else, either sexually or emotionally. 
but it's culture that socializes us to deal with it in a particular way. If, if we studied every human being on the planet, we would probably find that the vast majority experience jealousy at some point. But the way that the jealousy manifests itself and the way it's coped with is probably highly cultural. And that that probably has always been true, even in ancient times, you know, 500,000 years ago. So, you know, our parents are models for us in terms of how to deal with our feelings. And jealousy is one of those feelings that they help us to deal with. One person, when they're jealous, tends to stuff it while another person tries to talk it out, while another person gets violent, while another person distances themselves. So how do we explain those differences among those individuals? How do we explain differences among cultures? You know, some cultures are much more likely to be violent with their wives, whereas in other cultures, they're much more likely to try to talk it out. Well, how do we explain those differences? Are they instinct? Probably not. It's probably culture. We teach people how to cope with their feelings. So that's kind of how I see it. All right. Well, that does it for the psychology portion of this episode. I thought I would conclude the episode with some talk about music. If you're not interested in me talking about music, go ahead and turn it off. Not a big deal. I won't be insulted. But if you're interested, stick around. My band, Bread Knife Incident, has released a few albums. And if you go on iTunes and purchase the music, it the proceeds mainly go to the podcast. So that's one way you can show your support. So I thought I would, as I have in previous episodes, talk about one of the songs that we've recorded. This song is called Forever Into Days, and let me just play a clip from it. So what can I say about this song? Well, first off, the lyrics go, and whenever I read lyrics, I always feel like a beat poet, a pretentious poet, and I hate it. But just to get the words across to you, here, here's how the lyrics go. Foggy eyes and apathy. You were calling just to see if I was alive, to see if I deny that I have a friend. It's always been a fantasy to have a common loyalty as me, staring into eyes, sharing into lives forever into days. Is it you I'm waiting for? Please tell me as you did before. It's me who calls you every night to see if you're all right forever in today's. So, you know, it's a pretty straightforward song. It's, it's basically, I, I like to write stories. I like to imagine a scenario when I'm writing lyrics. I, I don't like lyrics that kind of dance around the topic. I like, I like to kind of create a scene, I guess. Basically in this scene, the, the fictional person either male or female, is sitting at home and someone is calling. We'll, we'll call it a, a, a man. So basically in this, in this story, we have a, a fictional man who's sitting at home alone and he's apathetic and he's, he's sort of fogging his mind. And someone calls him to, just to see if he's alive and to see if uh, he knows that he has a friend. And then this, this man, he's, he's, he says to this person on the phone, he says, geez, you know, it's always been a fantasy to have someone who was as loyal as I was, um, someone that I could stare into their eyes, someone that we could, that we could share our lives together forever. So the, the line where it says, sharing into lives forever into days, 
it's sort of a, I like these kind of phrases that can mean more than one thing. So forever into days could mean two different things. In one, it could mean, you know, forever into the future. So forever into the days that will come. But it can also mean forever in two days, in the number two days, so one or two days. You could share in someone's life an eternity in just two days. You could experience forever in just two days, if that makes any sense. So this song evokes in me a a kind of a sadness, as a lot of my songs that I write do, but a sort of a, a joyful sadness where... You have someone who is feeling alone but is getting a glimpse that they're not, and they have hopes for the future. They, they haven't given up yet, and they're idealistic about finding someone that they can be with forever, and they haven't given up yet. It's also a, a sad joy to have someone calling someone saying, hey, you know, remember I'm still alive. I still, I'm still loyal to you. I'm still your friend. I think in our modern American society, most people lack friendships. There are certainly a lot of people who have a lot of friendships, but I find that a lot of people don't have as many friends as I think we should have. A lot of people are very isolated and and have no friends. They might only socialize with their spouse, and if they don't have a spouse, then they might not socialize with anybody. And of course, it's wonderful to socialize with your spouse, but to require one person to give you all your social needs is unreasonable. And I think that's a problem. For whatever reason in in our society, we value friendships when we're children and adolescents, but we don't necessarily value friendships when we're adults. Like if you had a 16-year-old that had no friends, most people would be like, oh, that's that's a problem. 16-year-olds should have friends. But if you have a 56-year-old that doesn't have any friends, people don't normally think that that's a problem. They just think, well, you know, friends are for children, right? No, they're for humans, and humans of all ages need friends. So anyway, this song kind of has that in there, too. So I thought, as with other songs that I've talked about, I might review some of the older versions of the song. When, when I'm writing a song, I'll pull out my iPhone or some other tiny recording device and just quickly record a rough draft of the song very quickly just to just to get it down so I don't forget it because if I don't record it I might forget it so let's listen to some of those early clips At the end of the recording, you can hear me screaming about fucking metal music. The reason for this is because we were, we were recording this album in our studio space in Belltown, and it's a building, and there's probably, I don't know, 10 different practice spaces with 10 different bands that rent these different rooms. 
And there was this band that would practice near us. I don't even think they were next door. I think they were like a few doors down. But they would play this just awful metal, death metal stuff. And the only thing you would hear coming out of the room through the walls was this low rumbling noise. It was just like... And it just was the most inane sound. And if you love death metal, then all the more to you. But I don't even know if it was called death metal. It was just sort of like this bad music. Let's just put it that way. And, you know, we should have gone into the studio and recorded the album there, there, you know, because it's all soundproof. But we tried to do it on the cheap. And so we're recording the whole thing in our practice space and therefore can't tell everyone else in the building that they can't play while we're recording. So at the end of this song, after we're done recording it, I can hear that sound bleeding into our recording. And I was frustrated. So I said, fucking metal music. So let's just go to that little bit there. Alright, well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, and please take care of yourself. And if you're interested in providing feedback, go to psychologyinseattle.com, go to the Contact Us page and contact us. You can also go to the Support Us page and learn how to support us. There's also, I have some links too, which um, are of interest to me. There's some videos that I've posted on there, other people's videos that I think are fascinating videos. Whenever I come across something that I really dig, I usually post it there. So go to the links page and watch some of the videos. Um, all right. So see ya.